Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flock, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And when messenger and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and, the, and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that, that that's left will escape. And Jacob said, O God, my father of a- my father Abraham, uh, and God of my father Isaac. O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country, and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, my, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as a sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground, seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all of this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he he took it. Then Esau said, let us go away and I will go ahead of you. 
But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for the livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred, uh, he brought for a hundred piece of mo- pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your word this morning. God, we ask that um, you speak to us through your word, that you use your servant, um, Josue, this morning, Lord God, in the preparation that he's given in time, he's given to sit and marinate in your word, that you would use him as a mouthpiece this morning to communicate the truth that's in your scripture. Uh, Lord God, um, we are incapable of understanding this truth without you intervening, and so I pray that you would do a work in us, give us eyes to see what you've put in your word for us to see. God, give us minds to understand it. Give us hearts to deeply and truly believe it, that we would live out of um, obedience to you and what you've called us to. And give us hearts to believe, Lord God. We're grateful for our time together this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. Buenos dias, familia. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Josue, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at the Grove Church and also as the church planning resident as we prepare to multiply out toward the Sugarland area to continue to preach the gospel to reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So if this is your first time here, you're probably wondering if we normally preach on this many verses, and the answer is it depends on the Sunday. And you're probably wondering how long it's going to take me to get through this. Um, so I, uh, I plan for three minutes a verse. So that's 32 verses times three minutes. It's 96 minutes. So prepare yourselves. I'm kidding. Um, so I wanted to start off today with a question to you. And uh, if you're bold enough, please raise your hand. How many of you would say you have perfectly obeyed God's direction show of hands because i want to meet you after church if that's you i think around here we would all agree that we've not perfectly obeyed god's direction god's commandments and the things that we find in this word and as we've journeyed through genesis it's been a beautiful reminder for all of us that the fathers of the faith were no different than you and i that the fathers of the faith We're not fathers of the faith because they worked and did things so perfectly and listened to God so perfectly and their lives were just amazing in everything that they did. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. We see men and women who are constantly trying to figure out ways to protect themselves, constantly figuring out ways to get ahead, constantly figuring out ways to increase their wealth. 
And despite all of that, God meets them where they are at. And what we find in Genesis is, is the greatest story, not of the heroes of the faith, but of God's faithful work amidst our humanity. God's faithful work amidst our humanity. And today, um, as I was thinking about today's sermon, and I'm thinking about Jacob, and we are been th- looking at Jacob's life for a few uh, weeks now, what we find in Jacob is no different. We find a man who last week was wrestling with God, he was wrestling with God, and he didn't stop until he received God's blessing. And we see that the life of Jacob is one of struggle. He struggled with his father 20 years before today. He struggled with his brother. He stole his brother's blessing. He struggled with his father-in-law for the last 20 years. And now he's headed back to the promised land that God has called him to. And he's struggling to get there without the fear of being killed by his brother who back in chapter 27, said, hey, when my father passes, I will take vengeance and I will kill Jacob. So we see a man that is struggling, and yet he is one of the fathers of the faith that we look back to and acknowledge. So I'd like for you to turn with me to Habakkuk. It's probably not a book you often turn to. It's in the Old Testament, Um, right after Nahum, right before uh, Zephaniah. Habakkuk 2, and it'll come up on the screen, but if you have it, I want you to highlight this because it's probably a verse you've heard before. It's a verse that's quoted in the New Testament, Romans 1, but it says this, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Or you see a footnote there that says, by faithfulness. And I titled today's sermon, sermon, Living by parentheses, struggling faith. I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm not trying to change God's word, but I'm trying to highlight the reality of the Christian life. I'm trying to highlight the reality of Jacob's life and the things that we will learn from him today. And it's that this life is not so easy. It's not so linear. It's not we come to faith and, man, we skyrocket straight into holiness and to perfection. No, in fact, this life is a struggling faith life. It's the life of the man who comes before Jesus who has a son with an unclean spirit and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's the journey for all of us. And what we will discover in Jacob's journey today is that we're no different than him, that we are struggling in our faith. And if we are honest on most of our days, we can acknowledge that it is a struggle, that that we have this great need for God. But it's not up to us. Ultimately, it's up to God's work in us, and that's the beautiful reminder that we'll discover today that living by struggling faith, God uses that to ultimately bring glory to himself and to ultimately create good for our lives. And so that's what we will discover in today's text. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 32, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So we have Jacob has just left Laban, 20 years of comfort, 20 years of knowing um, his father-in-law and the work that's there, and now he's headed to, back to the promised land that God has called him to. 
Back in chapter 28, we see that God tells him to go back to this land. And, and Jacob says, I'll go back if you protect me. And he lives these 20 years with Laban, and now he's headed back. And he's leaving a hard place where he's tried to amount wealth for himself, where he's tried to create a name for himself, where he's tried to live a life that is pleasing to himself. And now he's headed back to the promised land knowing, I'm about to go face my brother Esau, who's promised to kill me. So he's leaving a hard place, headed to another hard place. And I think this is pretty indicative of our lives. I've yet to speak to any of you that have told me, man, brother, I've arrived, like my life is good, like we're coasting. My kids are behaving, my spouse loves me when I get home, man, I just, everything works out perfectly well. None of us have that story in life. In fact, it feels like we go from one hardship to the next hardship. It feels like we finished the pandemic, and now I was reading this week, we're at 9.1% in inflation. The highest has been since 1981. There's another variant coming of Omicron that's supposed to be the most contagious this fall, and and we feel like we're going from one hard situation to the next. How will we be able to navigate this life? How does Jacob navigate this life, going from one hard place to the next? And what we find here is that Jacob stepped away from Laban in obedience and is now journeying back to the promised land and gets to this place called Mahan, that he names Mahanaim. And he, we discover a couple of things in these first two texts. One says that Jacob saw the angels. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. You see, it wasn't that God wasn't with Jacob up to this point. It wasn't that God had abandoned Jacob and, and said, you know what, once you obey me, I'll reveal myself to you. No, in fact, it was that Jacob just, he was in a camp and in a place that was so different and so ungodly that he couldn't yet see God's will for his life. And now for the first time, he stepped away. He's walking in obedience. He's headed toward the plan that God has for his life. And now all of a sudden, he is able to recognize God and God's presence and God's nearness to him. Our brother brother Spurgeon says this about this text. Our Mahanaims occur at much the same time as that in which Jacob behind this great, uh, Jacob, in which Jacob beheld this great sight. Jacob was entering upon a more separated life. He was leaving Laban and the school of all the tricks of bargaining and bartering which belonged to the ungodly world, and he was now stepping into God's camp. So I have a simple question for you today. What camps are you in? What camps have you been in? that God's asked you to step away from so that you can be in God's camp? What are the camps in your life? Maybe it's the camp of busyness. Maybe it's the camp of comfort, the camp of control, the camp of wanting things your way. And God's inviting you into something deeper, into this Mahanaim, this camp where it's him and you, and you are living with God, you are uh, enjoying God, you are learning from God, you are understanding God. But in order to be in this camp of God, we must step away in obedience from the camps that are holding us back from seeing who God is and what his plan is for our lives. And so what we find in these first few verses is that God uses struggling faith, not perfect faith, but struggling faith to grow us. So Jacob comes to this camp. He sees God. He says, God's camp is here. And he's like, you know what? I'm in God's camp now. I will fully trust the Lord, so I don't need to do anything else except trust God. We don't see that in the text, right? In fact, we see the opposite. He's like, all right, so I'm in God's camp. Well, just in case, let me send my servants out to Esau. And I'm going to say, hey, uh, Esau, your servant, he's coming to meet you. 
And he's beginning to use language that God's forming in him of humility. Hey, your servant is coming out to meet you. And by the way, I have all these ox and all these donkeys and all these male and female servants. And it's almost like I, James wore the perfect shirt today. Let's talk about how awesome I am, right? So he's like, hey, so God's creating all this humility in me. But by the way, like, look at all these things that I've accumulated, right? And it's kind of this thought of like, man, I am the most humbled person you'll ever meet, right? Now, it might be true. No, but it's not true, right? And yet... Jacob's been working towards something, and now he's trying to use that which, from, what he, from what he's worked to protect himself. And even though he's in God's camp, there's this struggle of, in him of like, well, okay, God's kind of leading me in this direction back to the promised land, but just in case, let me see if I can earn some favor with my brother Esau. And what we find is he sends his servants, his servants come back, and what do they tell him? Hey, you ran to your brother, we get, got him the message that you wanted us to send, by the way, He's got 400 men with him. And Jacob, it says here in verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Remember the struggling faith? Jacob is still wrestling with his old self of, of him strategizing and him scheming and him trying to figure out how to protect himself. And those schemes and those plans and that strategy is not enough. He still fears and distresses and is distressed as he thinks about meeting his brother. And so he plans out and he says, I'm going to divide the camp in two just in case Esau comes and attacks me. If one of the camps gets killed, the other one can escape. And so we begin to see the struggle, right, of, man, I believe, Lord, but just in case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how to protect myself. Just in case you don't show up and you don't do what you say you're going to do, I'm going to divide the camps and I'm going to protect my family. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to protect the things that I built toward up until this point in my life. And we see Jacob wrestling with this reality of, man, I trust God, and yet I'm also trusting in myself. And so as we look at this text, I... I I realize we're not that different than Jacob. See, Jacob flexes. He's worked. He's had this works in him trying to figure out how to protect himself, and is now trying to gain Esau's favor through the things he can give him, and he's not yet fully relying on God, and we do the same things in our lives. See, fear keeps us from seeing God for who he truly is and what he's truly doing in our lives, and when we have this fear and this trust, the things that keep us up at night, the things that we are working toward, hoping will bring us the relief that we seek. Uh, we uh, basically separate ourselves from God's plan for our life. Jacob's no different. He's wanting to do God's will. He's wanting to step in obedience, and yet he doesn't have full belief, and so he strategizes and he plans. So let me ask you, what's your just-in-case plan? Do you have a just-in-case plan? Just in case God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Just in case God doesn't show up, just in case God doesn't really provide, I'm going to have my savings account filled up as much as possible. I'm going to have investments as much as possible, or maybe I'm stressed because I don't have investments. Maybe I am going to have the extra tutor for my kids because they're in public school, or maybe they need to go to private school, or maybe they need to do homeschooling. All good things, fam. All good things, but when they become the ultimate thing we place our hope on, we miss the joy and the reality that our greatest hope is not in the things that we can use to self-protect and self-preserve, but the greatest joy that we find is placing our hope on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, who will come through for us, who will inevitably, as we'll see in this text, come through for what he said he will do. And so Jacob sends this plan out. It doesn't quietly go as, as he planned. And mind you, 
In the text, we never see that Esau is building an army to come attack Jacob. It's his fear and distress, right? His, his servants come back and say, hey, he's got 400 men. And it's possible from what I read that Esau was simply moving around, and so he had these men with him. But fear and distress and this disbelief caused an interpretation in Jacob that was not from God. He hadn't yet turned to God to ask, Lord, what, what is it that you're doing? Instead, he's like, oh, no, Esau's coming to kill me, and he's got 400 guys with him. And so he's in God's camp. He strategizes. Now we see him turn back to God, and in verse 9, he does this where we, he probably should have started off in the per- first place. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. We'll stop there for a second. Jacob finally does what he should have probably done in the first place. He prays. He prays. I have to ask us, are we a praying people more than we are strategizing people? And your brother up here, I love me some strategy. And you guys know this about me. I love me some spreadsheets. Some t- like, man, Lord, I got it all figured out. I just need you to bless it. And we bring these plans before the Lord. And, and in prayer, we're like, Lord, what we're really asking is for you to bless my plans. We're not really seeking God's plans. And what we have to realize in our journey of struggling faith that God is using to grow is it's this, is that we're coming to God. And even though we have his protection, we have to continually seek his direction. That day after day, we must kneel down before our Lord and say, Lord, what is it you're trying to teach me? What is it you're trying to show me? What is it you're trying to grow in me? Help me become aware of your work in me that I may live out the faith that you've called me to live out. Otherwise, we will fall back to our just-in-case plan, to the secondary things that are not bad. It's a part of our context. It's a part of our lives here in the suburbs. But it's not the greatest thing, not the greatest joy we'll find. And so maybe you felt stuck. Maybe you felt like, man, Lord, I just, I feel like I'm going through the motions. I feel like I can't, I can't get ahead. I, I go from one hard situation to the next. These seasons don't seem to end. Well, Jacob gives us this beautiful prayer here for us to see. He first acknowledges the faith of his father, Abraham, and the faith of his father, Isaac. And if you've ever wondered if your faith matters, this is proof that your faith does matter. Beyond the greatest education you could give your kids, beyond the greatest savings account or, or um, beyond paying for their college, beyond setting them up for the future, the greatest gift that, honestly, you could offer your kids is the faith that you're living out in front of them every day. See, Jacob looked back to the faith of Abraham, looked back to the faith of, of Isaac, and he remembered the stories. Not, he, he, he remembers that they weren't perfect but that they turned to the faithful one, that they were faithless at many times in their lives, and yet they would turn to the one who was always faithful. And so Jacob acknowledges the generational um, blessing from God, his generational work over his family. So I would just say this to you today. Your relationship with God matters most. The rhythms of faith that you have, the rhythms of spiritual life that you have are the ones that will speak the most to your kids and to the people that you're discipling. So what spiritual rhythms do you have? These rhythms will have echoes in the future. And by the way, the lack of rhythms will also have echoes in the future. And so beyond just teaching your kids or be teaching the people around you who you're discipling, hey, do as I say, not as I do, I would, just, I would say what if we became people like Jacob here that kneeled down, that those around us 
our family, our friends, our neighbors will see us as people who repent and believe in the gospel every day. As men and women who can acknowledge, man, we are, we're struggling in our faith and yet God's using that to grow us. That I don't do things well, but I come back to him every day and I say, Lord, I need more of you. Lord, help me because I am struggling. What if those were the kind of people that we would be? What kind of impact will we have on this generation and the generation to come? We heard a few weeks ago that what we tolerate today, the next gener- generation will celebrate. And so what if we not just tolerated things, but instead we actually actively lived out what God's called us to live out? He goes on in verse 10 and says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For, for with only my staff, I have crossed the Jordan and I, I have come to two camps. I want you to turn with me to Exodus 34. I'm about to take you to probably one of my favorite places in the Old Testament. And if you've heard me preach before, you've probably heard me take you here. And you're about to see why. Uh, Exodus 34, the next book in, uh, in the Bible. Just to give you a quick context, Moses has come down with the tablets. The people of God are worshiping an idol, breaks the tablets. God has to give him another set of tablets. And in his dialogue with God, Moses in... Um, Chapter 33, verse 18 says, please show me your glory. And in God's response to him is this, verse 6, uh, verse 6 in chapter 34, he says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I want you to say this word with me, hesed. Hesed. So that's the Greek word for steadfast love. And if you're not spitting, you're not saying it correctly, okay? Hesed. This is God revealing himself. And when he says, I am full of steadfast love and faithfulness, when these words are found together, they are united, meaning this is God's character. He will not change or waver from this. This is God revealing who he is to his people. And in Jacob's prayer, we have a foreshadowing of this revelation. Jacob has experienced and has experienced this steadfast love and this faithfulness from God. And therefore, he can pray this when he comes before the Lord and say, Lord, I am not worthy of the least of these deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness, and yet he has been given this steadfast love and this faithfulness. And we find it, Jacob continues in his prayer and says in verse 11, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Lord, protect my family. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered in multitude. We find Jacob here before the Lord in this beautiful prayer that I just want to kind of separate out for us. He acknowledges God's generational work, God's faithfulness through the generations. He acknowledges God's personal call on his life to go back to the promised land. He acknowledges God's character of full of steadfast love and faithfulness. He humbles himself before this, love, this God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He acknowledges his fear before the Lord. Lord, I'm scared my brother's going to come and kill my family. And then he ends and acknowledges God's promises. And so I have to ask you today, as you pray and you're going before the Lord, what are you acknowledging before him? 
Are you acknowledging who he is? Are you acknowledging the fears and the distresses that you have in your life? And what promises are you holding on to? Are you holding on to the promise that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he has forgiven you, that he is near, that he has not abandoned you, that he is providing, that you matter, that your kids matter, that your situation matters, that he has called you to something greater, that he has life and abundant life for you to enjoy, that he has a mission for all of us to go and make disciples, and he promised that he would be with us to the, to the end of the earth. Are these the promises that we hold on to when we go before the Lord? The answer is yes, praise the Lord, fam, keep that up. Keep praying these prayers. Keep acknowledging God's faithful work. If the answer is no and you're struggling to acknowledge God's faithfulness, you're struggling to see his promises, you're in good company. Jacob forgets this. He prays, and then what does he do? He sits back and he, he, he says, Lord, whatever you'll do, I'll trust. No, what we end up seeing in the next verses is he's like, all right, Lord, I'm in your camp. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send some servants to Esau to see win favor. All right, I'm praying just in case I'm going to send 580 animals to Esau as a token to see if I'll gain his favor. And he sends his servants, and on his way, he's like, hey, by the way, as every servant passes, tell Esau, hey, your servant sent these, your servant sent these. And he, he says in verse 20 of chapter 32, Where he thought, I may appease him, and with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. We see a man acting out of fear, a man acting out of distress, even though he's prayed this beautiful prayer, the struggling faith, right? He's like, Lord, just in case you don't come through, I'm going to send all these animals to, to appease and to hopefully win favor with Esau. God is using, using our struggling faith to grow us. So we move on to this next section in chapter 33. We see him wrestle with God. Again, God's camp, strategy, prayer, strategy. He wrestles with God last week. God dislocated his hip. He's kind of walking with the limp now to remember the Lord's working in him. The Lord's doing something. The Lord's there to protect him. The Lord's blessing him. And what do we find he does in, in the first three verses? Let's read together. Chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Verse 3, and he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came, he, until he came near to his brother. So just a quick little side note. We see Jacob wrestle with God, receive God's blessing, be renamed Israel, and now he goes back. He's about to have his moment of reckoning. He sees Esau coming, 400 men, and what does he do? He strategizes. He's like, all right, well, this is it. So he places his kids and his wives in order of preference, in order of love. He sends his servants out, the servants out first with the kids, then Leah, and then finally at the end, Rachel and Joseph. And we begin to see here a little bit of favoritism that later on in Genesis 37, we'll see him actually acknowledge Joseph as his favorite. And we see that this actually produces much division among the tribes and his kids later on in life. And so as we look at this, and we've heard this as we've been journeying through Genesis, parents, you must do your best to love all your children equally. Yesterday alone, I had two conversations, one with my own family and one with another family about favoritism. And sometimes it's real simple. It's real simple like this, and your kids catch on. Yesterday's conversation was this simple. We know whose password, you know, whose name the password is for my parents' account. That's simple, right? 
We know whose birthday they use for their passwords, for their pins. And they begin to catch these things. And my family, you know, my mom apparently uses my name for some of her passwords. And, and, and it's little things like this that, you know, we're like, not that big of a deal. But we see here that the seed of jealousy and the seed of division is this favoritism. And so I'm not saying you guys play favorites, but we've heard it's easier sometimes to connect with one or uh, one of the other kids that you have. And so you must do the best you can to love your kids equally, to serve them equally. And we're about to see this in uh, Jacob's declaration of his family, to love them well so that they, in the future they may have good relationships and they may know that they are loved equally by both of you guys, both of you parents and your kids. And so we see East, uh, Jacob go, bow down. We're seeing this faith, this struggling faith begin to produce humility in him and he bows down before Esau and we find the verse that's been messing me up this entire week, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob comes after journeying all these years and expecting to be met with reckoning. He's expected to be met with someone who's about to kill him. He's expecting to pay the price for his sins that he's committed up to this point for stealing his brother's blessing. And what he finds is the opposite. What he finds is mercy. What he finds is grace. What he finds is God's been working in Esau. And Esau is so joyful to see his brother that he runs to him. He doesn't wait for Jacob to come close to him. He runs to Jacob and hugs him and kisses him. And in that one moment, we see a beautiful picture and foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus, that you and I deserve death, that we try to save ourselves with, by our works, that we try to earn God's favor by our works. And yet God says, that's all great, that's good, but that's never going to be enough. No, I simply love you. I simply am for you. I am with you because of the finished work on the cross, because of Christ, because he paid the price. I can love you. I can hug you. I can be close to you. I can be near you because God's done the work for us already. And we see Jacob realizes in that moment that all his work, all his planning, all his strategizing wasn't ultimately what would save his life. It was the prayer. It was God's work in him. So the second thing we find as we journey through this text is God uses struggling faith to reconcile us to himself and to others. God uses this struggling faith to reconcile us to himself and to others. And so he comes before Esau. Esau's like, hey, who are all these people that you have with you? And Jacob says this in verse, uh, in verse 5. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Pay attention to Jacob's language. He's not saying this man, this wealthy man. He's saying the gracious gift of God is this children that he's given your servant. We begin to take some nuggets. These last few verses will just be nuggets we'll take that you can apply throughout your life. First is this, that Jacob sees his family as a gracious gift from God that he's called to serve. Not just lead or protect or provide for. He says that God has graciously provided your servant. So let me ask you, do you see your family as a gracious gift of God for you to serve? Uh, you might think of your relatives. You might think, man, sometimes it's kind of hard to be around them. I get it. 
And yet God's called you to serve them, to love them, to be a blessing to them. But maybe it's more than just your relatives. Maybe it's your family in Christ here at the church. Maybe it's the people around here, the body of Christ. Remember, God's using our struggling faith to reconcile us to himself and to others. But what we see here is that our faith is not just a vertical thing. Us being reconciled to God has an implication in the horizontal. It's not just us and God and God saved me and God's so gracious to me and he gives me his grace and mercy. It's as he gives me this grace and mercy, now I'm called to kind of give that out. Not kind of give that out. He's called me to give that out to the people around me, to reconcile with the people around me. And we begin to see this change in mindset of Jacob that, hey, the Lord's given grace and mercy to me and these are a gracious gift of God that I am now called to serve. And so he continues on in these verses the we'll continue to verse to verse 9 but Esau said I have enough my brother keep what you have for yourself Jacob said no please I have found favor in your sight then accept my present from my hand for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough thus he urged him and he took it we find Esau and Jacob now both making a statement, I have enough. A statement of contentment, a statement of acknowledgement of what God's provided for them up to this point in their lives. So as I'm wrestling through this text this week, I'm asking myself, am I content in what God has given me? Do I find myself saying words like this, I have enough? Or do I find myself saying words like, I need more? Do you find yourself throughout the week saying words like, I have enough? Or do you find yourself praying and asking for more, needing more, wanting more? The reality of the life in Christ, of the life of the abundant life in Christ is that we actually do have enough. That God has given, it enough, given us enough and everything that we need to live this godly life. But we forget why we have the struggling faith that keeps us from seeing that God's actually provided all that we needed and so when we don't have a posture of contentment, what ends up happening is we begin to take, we begin to want, we begin to grab so that we can fill ourselves with the things that we need. But what if God's calling us to be men and women of contentment, of finding our joy and our peace and our ful fulfillment in him? What if those were the kind of people that we would be? I'll read this over you. This is in the NIV, Matthew 10. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out, with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then he ends by saying, freely you have received, freely you have give, freely you should give. So let me ask you, what are the things you are given to those around you? You've freely been given grace and mercy. You've freely been given forgiveness and love, steadfast love and faithfulness. What are the things that you are giving to those around you? Jacob looks at Esau and says, man, I, I see your face. It's like seeing the face of God. And it's not that Esau was glowing and had a halo and he's like, man, I, it's like seeing God. No, he sees God's faithfulness. He sees God's steadfast love and the way Esau reacted to him. When people see you, what do they see? Do they see the character of God? Or are they like, oh, man, there comes a sweat. Let's go the other way. When I first met Yadira, I was 22 years old. 
2008. I had just graduated college. I was a punk 22-year-old kid. I was a know-it-all, and she could not stand me. And we would hang out with friends at the church, and we'd go eat together. And Yadira would say, Josue going? And they'd say yes. And she's like, yeah, I'm not going to go. Little did she know God's plan for her life. (laughs) But I think back on that time, and there wasn't any humility in me. There wasn't any of the fruit of spirit evidence in my life and the way I was walking. I was this guy who was 22, puffed up, thinking I knew so much, thinking I was doing things so right, thinking I was going to be such a big blessing to whoever would marry me one day, cream of the crop. And God had to remind me, I'm not the cream of the crop. I need a lot of humility, and I'm still in the struggling faith in this journey. God is still working in me, and, and, and marriage has been a blessing to me because it's allowed me to grow in awareness of the things that I still need to work on and change and submit to the Lord. God's grace, years later, she would not think that way. And, you know, most days now she can stand me. She doesn't go the other way. So I ask, what do people see when they look at you, when they see your face? Are we people that... Others around us, especially those that don't yet know Christ, want to be around because they see something different, because they experience something different when they're around you. They experience the people that are repentant, people that are loving, people that are giving, people that are caring, people who are um, raising the dead, cleansing, that are healing. And maybe you're saying, I don't have, like, this is very prophetic, this is, like, very spiritual. No, but there are ways for us to serve. What if we are the people that are renewing the places around us, that are restoring the places around us with the power of the gospel because we've been restored and renewed because we are people that have enough. So God's reconciliatory work in us comes with intentionality towards those around us, and we'll land in these last uh, few verses, 15 through 20. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for livestock. Therefore, the name of the place was called Succoth. The final thing that I just want to present to you out of this text is that God uses our struggling faith for his glory and purpose. In these last few verses, it almost seems like they're just like, man, and he lived here and he left and this place was named that. There's, there's so much richness in these last few verses i just want to i just want to present to you briefly esau tries to leave these 400 some of these 400 men to protect jacob on his way back home like we see esau's heart now esau's trying to be a blessing to jacob and jacob says no i'm good i'm good brother i i i don't need that and then he journeys to succoth which uh further in leviticus 23 we're going to find god gives the people of israel some festivals that they are to celebrate, some things they are to commemorate. And one of them is the festivals of booths, the festival of tabernacles. And the word that is used in Leviticus 23 comes from here. The naming comes from here, succoth. And it's a representation that God has come to dwell among his people. You see, this would be a reminder to the, God, to the people of God in the future that God has come to me among his people. As Jacob now settles and creates this home and these booths, he's still journeying toward where God's taking him to. This would be a reminder for God's people that God has not abandoned us. And it's a foreshadowing of John 1, that the word came and the word dwelt among us. 
that he made his home among us. And it's a beautiful foreshadowing. God is using our lives. Nothing is wasted. There is purpose in it all. And then verse 18, and Jacob came safely. It doesn't just say Jacob came. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Quick pause. Jacob in chapter 28 says, Lord, if you'll bring me back safely, I'll honor you. You will be my God. That's what he says in in chapter 28. And I'll give a tenth of everything to you. And so the writer here is very intentional and reminds us that God brought him back safely. The word here is uh, for a word of wholeness, that God has completed and is completing a work in Jacob and is bringing him back. And we find the next name, which is in the land of Canaan, from the verb kana, which means to humble. There's, there's all this symbolism here that's pointing to the future. So he's brought him back safely. He's brought him back into Canaan. He's given him humility through these difficult circumstances, and he's still growing in humility. He's not landed in humility. On his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And Padan Aram is also a word that has great significance here. And it means elevated ransom. And so as we look at all these places that seem like just namings, like just random places, they actually end up not being so random. See, they all have the symbolism of the future redemptive work God will be doing in this place and in the future of his people. He has brought humility to Jacob. He has protected him. He has created his wholeness in his life. And he's still working in his struggling faith. And guess what this space will be? that he buys in verse 19. He says, And from the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces of money and the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. This will be the place that a few thousand years later, Jesus will sit around a well and he will meet the Samaritan woman. And she'll say, In this well, Jacob's well, of our father. See, there's no wasted experience, circumstance, situation. There's no wasted experience in your life that God will not use for his purpose and his glory. And we see this here. And finally, Jacob says, there he erected an altar. Uh, Sorry, then we see Jacob. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means the God of Israel. After all these experiences of, I believe, but just in case, I'm going to pray, but just in case, I wrestle with God, but just in case, and he's met with met with redemption, with grace, with mercy. He sees God's hand in his life. He comes to a place and he acknowledges and he says, God, the God of Israel, because he sees God's faithful work. And so as we end our time today, I simply want to ask you, are you constantly seeking God's direction in your life? Or have you landed in a place that feels safe? You feel protected. You feel like God's provided. But there's no more cost to following Jesus. There's no more cost to saying yes in obedience. It's safe. The answer is yes. Maybe God has something in store for you to take a next step of obedience for his glory, for his purposes and your good. Are you constantly seeking God's direction? Second thing I want you to take away, be aware. Be aware of those you lead, including yourself. Know your bent. What are the camps that are keeping you from seeing God? 
What are the camps that are keeping you from being in God's camp? And if you are having a hard time finding those, ask your spouse. Guarantee they'll give you a couple of them. Ask the people in your growth group. Ask the people around here, hey, what, what do you see in my life that may be keeping me from truly obeying God and what he is asking me to do? At what pace are you leading yourself and lead, leading others? The verse I skipped over, but Jacob basically tells Esau, hey, I can't, I can't run beyond the pace of my children and my flock. Are you being aware? Are you cognizant of the pace of your children, of the people you're leading in your neighborhood group, of the neighbors that you're sharing the gospel with? Are you being others-focused, servant, or are you more focused on your pace and what you want and what you are trying to accomplish? And finally, quite simply, what is your struggling faith demonstrating to those around you? Are people seeing the face of God when they see the way you live? Are they seeing his holiness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his slow to anger, his grace, his mercy, his restoration? Are those the things that people see in us as we live outside of this gathering space? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for men like Jacob that you called and that obey you and yet don't obey you. And yet you, Lord, use all that ultimately to grow Jacob and to carry out your purpose and plan of redemption so that today we would be here reading, remembering, learning, journeying, Lord, with Jacob as we look at our lives and see that we have struggling faith as well, that on our best days, Lord, we can see that and acknowledge that we are not submitting to you, that we're not trusting in you, that instead we are trusting in our plans in our strategies and ways to protect ourselves and protect our families and protect our futures. And yet the journey you call us on is not a safe one. And because it's not a safe one, it calls us into a deeper dependence on you and not ourselves. I just pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, whatever nuggets or life lessons we can take from Jacob's life, I just pray that those things would stir in us a deeper desire to obey you, to step out in faith, to trust that you are doing a great work amidst our struggling faith. Because you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your work, even when we are not. And Lord, thank you for the beautiful picture of redemption that we see in Esau. That it wasn't anything that Jacob gave or did or worked toward. It wasn't any of that. It was your work in their hearts and in their lives. Thank you that Jesus came and did that work on our behalf. So that you can run to us like the father and the prodigal son wrap your arms around us and say you're home you don't need to fight anymore you don't need to worry you don't need to stress you don't need to fear i got you father god i pray that you would allow us to be men and women that leave that live out of that deep faith knowing you are with us for us and that ultimately lord you're using our struggling faith for your glory and our good we're grateful for your work today